Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Analytic Assist with me, Dr. Shauna G, where you'll hear me interview an expert or experts on their work that is somehow related to energy, and probably a few things outside of that, because this is about the science, but it's also about making the science relatable. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us on the Analytic Assist episode two. So exciting. It's coming. It's happening. Uh, I'm here with Anna Handlin, who is a cardiac uh, ICU nurse and a children's hospital. So want to thank her so much for coming to the Analytic Assist to talk to us about energy. And I have a feeling that this conversation, um, well, really, as per usual, I think it's going to just turn out that way. It's going to go in a lot of different directions, which uh, here at the Analytic Assist, we sort of highly encourage within reason. We want to keep it a little organized. But again, um, the idea is to talk science, but to also make it really applicable. We're in this human experience. So thanks, Anna. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you are in Alabama right now. I am. I am in Alabama. I've been here for two weeks, um, just for kind of a change of scenery at my parents' beach house, trying to still lay low, not interact with too many people, but it's been nice and peaceful. Yeah, I bet. So Alabama, uh, my next question was going to be to have you just introduce yourself, and Alabama hits on some of your background, obviously. <laughs> like no name uh, background. It also hits on some of your pastime passions, I believe. Oh, yeah. Um, so really, you can't know me for more than five minutes without knowing I'm from Alabama, I would say. Um, <laughs> I would say that's I true. I lived there, yep, lived um, here most of my life. I went to Auburn University, a uh, huge fan of all sports and all things Auburn. Um, graduated five years ago in nursing. Um I've always kind of been interested in science, but I kind of hopped around to different things. I was exactly like you. When I was younger, I wanted to be a marine biologist. <laughs> uh, my parents took me to SeaWorld, and I was like, yep, this is it. I want to study dolphins. I want to do this. I'm looking at and my life right I, now. <laughs> yep. As I got older, I was like, okay, maybe not super realistic, but still wanted to do science. <laughs> um, so stuck with that, I was... Um, a big science nerd in college. I like couldn't decide what I wanted to do with it, but I just knew I wanted to continue to study science. I went from thinking I wanted to go to med school, thinking I wanted to do physical therapy, and then um, ended up landing on nursing. Um, I lived in Africa for about a year in college, and that was when I really changed and wanted to do nursing. Um, so yeah pretty much me in a nutshell. So unplanned question based on what you just said. So what about your experience in Africa made nursing the way to go? So I think just, I've never really spent that much time in a third world country. I was in um, Gulu, Uganda, uh, which is Northern. It's about uh, where we were was about like 30, 40 miles um, below South Sudan. and um, at that time, there was huge, like, South Sudan was just a war-ridden country, and so every single night, we'd see people, um, like, 50 or 60 people piled on trucks coming in from South Sudan, which is a side note, but it was very interesting. Um, so just when I was there, I think I saw the overwhelming need for 
healthcare and for just there was a immediate need. So my thought process was I didn't know if I wanted to end up doing advanced nursing, but all I knew is I could do nursing in four years and get out and start to make an impact immediately versus um, any other type of graduate school, um, PA or med school or whatever route I wanted to take. I would end up training for the next eight, 10 years. Um, so that's kind of why I changed and I was like, all right, there's an immediate need. I would rather make an impact quicker rather than staying school for longer. Oh my goodness. And make an impact you do. I would imagine that this has taken a different turn than you could have, you know, ever thought it would <laughs> recently, which we'll get to here in a minute. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> but let's talk about uh, the idea of energy. So how does the idea of energy relate to your clinical background, your nursing background? Yeah, so I work, um, as you said, I work in a pediatric cardiac ICU. Um, and essentially, starting there, I knew nothing about anything that that unit had to offer. I shouted there one day and was like, this is really cool. But I had, it is something that had never been introduced to me in nursing school. Um, so energy is pretty much a huge thing that we discuss more or less every single day on my unit, but we just use kind of different terms for it. So um, the patient population that I work with, um, we have neonates, so newborns, um, that are born with heart defects. So we operate um, on those. And then we have a lot of toddlers that are coming in for their third or fourth um, open heart surgery. And then we have um, teenagers um, that have cardiomyopathy, which is um, there's different forms of heart failure. So we can have like healthy teenagers come in. They've had maybe some respiratory symptoms. And then all of a sudden um, we get an x-ray. Their heart's huge. They're at heart failure. Um, so a lot of um, a lot of different energy topics are discussed. The main thing in being like your heart is the powerhouse of your body. It's what pumps blood and that oxygenated filled red blood cells to your body, to your different organs. Um, and so it is kind of what gives all the cells of your body that energy that you need. Um, and it's pretty cool because the body is so smart and it compensates so well in that your body and your brain knows when it pumps oxygenated blood, it knows where to send it first. So it's going to send it to your brain. It's going to send it to your coronaries because those are what need the oxygenated blood. Those are what need the energy the most. And maybe things like your kidney, your gut are going to get, well, not slack, but they're going to get the oxygenated blood last because your body is going to compensate and it knows in order to stay alive, this is where I need my energy. This is where I need my oxygenated blood. Right, um, so they're not forgotten, but they're just a little bit they're lower. They're not forgotten, right. So like in my right. patient population, our babies, a lot of them, if they're one week old and they haven't had surgery yet, their cardiac output or their heart function is low. So they're, we're trying to keep their energy levels low so that their heart is going to have enough strength to pump adequately to their whole body. So let's say that's a newborn that's, three days old and is going to need a big heart operation depending on how much energy we think they're going to need or how much they've shown us so they can show us signs um, that patient might be on a ventilator so we're taking away kind of the energy and the calories that they're burning breathing 
Um, and you don't think about that, that that's burning calories or that's taking up energy, but like breathing on your own, if a patient is breathing 70 times a minute, working hard to breathe. So they're going to be burning off that energy faster than they can create it. You're um, right. You think of it just as passive. It just happens. Not as something right. that would actually deplete what you have stored up as far as energy goes. Right. And we like a normal, healthy 27 year old that I am, I'm thinking, oh, you know, these are passive things. I'm eating food. My body passively digested. I'm breathing. My body passively digested. But for these kids in the ICU, any little thing is going to set them over the edge and be between, do I need to be intubated on a ventilator on sedation and muscle relax because my metabolic demand is too high for my body to properly energize and give oxygenated blood. Um, so it's things like breathing and things like when we're introducing food to their gut, do they have enough oxygenated blood to properly digest that food or are they going to get an infection because their body just doesn't have that energy level that you kind of need. Um, so so it's all really changed my perspective on just those passive things that you're doing daily that you're like, oh, this is actually really, really hard for people that are sick. Right. And it does actually take, um, so it could actually put you into an energetic deficit almost. Would that be fair yeah. to say? Yes. So we're going to come back to that idea, but I want to ask, so you mentioned that you have patients on ventilators, yet at the same time you're looking for signs of, can you take the work that you're currently doing, basically? How, what signs are you looking for when your patient, it seems like it'd be really hard to read any sort of signs. So how do you determine that? Yeah, so it kind of is depending on patient to patient, but uh, I mean, thankfully with today's modern medicine, there can be patients that I have a uh, three-day-old on a ventilator with several different monitoring devices. So I have a monitor that, that's telling me like every single thing I would ever possibly want to know about this patient, their heart rate, how fast they're breathing, what their temperature is, what their blood pressure is, uh, what their carbon dioxide levels are, how much um, we have a monitoring system from their breathing tube that's showing how well they're ventilating, um, taking oxygen in and breathing um, carbon dioxide out. And then we also, a lot of them have arterial lines, which um, is just like kind of, a, kind of an IV straight into an artery um, that gives us a constant blood pressure. And the main thing that we pull off of that is um, called a blood gas. So that is a good determinant of what the pH of your blood is and then how well they're ventilating, um, how well their body and their kidneys and their lungs are kind of responding to how much energy their body is having to exert. And there's a main number on those gases called lactate, which uh, if there's any athletes listening, you're going to you know, think of lactic acidosis, um, lactic acid that you build up in your muscles when muscles. you work really, mm -hmm. work really hard. Um, so that's a huge number that we follow lactate on those gases to see kind of how oxygenated her, their organs are getting and how much energy they're expending. And if your lactate jumps up really high, or if it just slowly kind of starts to trend up, climb up, we're constantly trying to say, okay, what can we do to take away less work of this patient's heart and body. 
So we want to make them have to do the minimum amount of energy to be able to properly oxygenate their their lungs, their kidney, their gut, their brain, their coronaries, all of that. Um, so it's constantly a moving wheel and you're constantly looking at um, all these different numbers and lab values and obviously assessing the patient as well. But it can be something as subtle as, um, I mean, your patient starts to breathe slightly faster. So a lot of things just kind of come with time and that experience of being able to see like very small changes. Um, mm -hmm. but a lot of, I don't know, it's very, it's very interesting. And I feel like I could do it for 20 years and still kind of have things to learn. Well, it sounds like you're taking just a few factors into consideration and analyzing them. <laughs> <laughs> just a few. <laughs> so I, I love that you mentioned the heart is the powerhouse of the body. I mean, if you think about it, going back to thinking about breathing, you know, respiration, your heartbeat, if you're healthy, you don't think about it. It just happens. But coming back to the heart being a powerhouse, it is amazing that this one organ can power your blood through your body from where it's housed in your chest all the way down to your feet. And if you really think about that and then back up against gravity. And if you right. think about that, that's incredible, right? Oh, I mean, it is fascinating and we'll have a lot of patients and people ask me all the time if I we we have patients on dialysis or where their kidneys have failed and they need help doing um exchanging um electrolytes and people will be like oh well I thought you worked on a cardiac unit but what a lot of people don't understand is yes it's a cardiac unit but if your heart isn't functioning well then the rest of your organs will follow um you can easily go into multi-organ failure if your heart isn't functioning at a sort of level that can kind of um, energize the rest of your body. Right. It's just incredible. So going back to what you touched on it before, the idea of your heart, the body in general, being extremely intelligent, and it's, it is absolutely incredible. And how specific places in the body will receive oxygenated blood first. They're the first priority. Whereas other parts of the body, they're a little bit lower on that priority list, right? Like they may make the guest list. They're sort of, you know what I mean? Like they're <laughs> not the VIP. through a friend. <laughs> right. You got the invite through the friend, right? Like, you know, the brain, but you are invited because you know, the brain. <laughs> um, <laughs> So you hit on a concept called uh, metabolic demand, right? Yeah. And so you touched on it, but can you really describe what that concept is? Yeah. So metabolic demand is a word that I feel like the healthcare community kind of throws around a lot, but it's pretty actually hard to explain or it's a hard concept. Um, but basically, I mean, everyone kind of understands what metabolism is. You know, when you think about energy, you're thinking, you know, calorie in and calorie out. Um, like your weight gain and loss is all just kind of an energy balance. So there's something called uh, basal metabolic demand. And it's essentially how much energy your body needs on a normal day under normal circumstances. Um, so your metabolic demand is kind of similar it's like how much energy your body needs and it can alter based on your activity level 
um, depending on um, kind of how active you are. So some people, um, if you, you can go out and run a marathon in one day, um, so your metabolic demand is going to be pretty high. But if you have a normal functioning heart, you're going to, you know, you're going to be okay for the most part. Um, you'll just need more energy in, which would be more calories in, obviously. Um, so when, you're, when your body is stressed or when your heart is stressed, not functioning quite as well, um, your the metabolic reserve. So it's basically, in terms of the heart, I'm going to talk kind of oxygen when we're thinking energy because oxygenated blood is kind of what um, gives your organs that functioning property. So um, when your heart is stressed or when your body is under stress, you're sick um, or, you know, you're in the hospital or you're just under the weather at home. Um, and for my patient population, so their oxygen, um, your oxygen available to your heart becomes insufficient. So this is kind of when you start seeing your metabolic demands a little bit too high for your energy level in your body to sufficiently meet. Um, so in my patient population, so in the kids in the cardiac ICU, we start to see kind of subtle signs. So one thing you can see when their metabolic plan is just a little bit too high is um, on your heart rhythm strip. So we all think, um, you know, your heart, you and I, our heart beats properly. It's in a normal rhythm, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all these different parts of a heart rhythm. And one of the main ones is there's an ST segment. Um, and that's what you're seeing on this, on the heart tape, you mean? On the EKG. Yeah. So on an yep. electrocardiogram on our monitor, or if you go to the physician and get a 12 lead EKG, et cetera, that's what we see. So a lot of times that is a very, there's a very subtle, like depression of that segment in your heart rhythm. And that is a super subtle sign that can show, hey, your metabolic demand's a little bit too high because your heart's stressed out. And that little change comes from the coronaries in your heart. And you think about what I said earlier, that is the first place that your heart is gonna send oxygenated blood is your brain and your coronaries. So, so that's kind something's of going on if that's shifting, that, right? Right, if that's shifting, you know, that's one of the first things that your heart's sending blood to. So then in turn, you have to think, okay, well, what about my kidneys? What about my liver? What about my lungs? What about my other organs that aren't as high on the priority list? Um, so then that can, that's essentially what could cause people to have an MI or, or a um, heart attack or internal cardiac arrest. Or for my kids, um, it ends up their ventricles and their heart. So like the pumping chamber of your heart, the performance decreases and you can go into, um, a heart rhythm that's not um, perfusing, it's not giving oxygenated blood to your body, or you could have a cardiac arrest or a heart attack, et cetera. Um, so it's all, metabolic demand is all kind of like how much energy your body is requiring right now, how much it's demanding right now. And so there are certain things that we can kind of do to lower that, to decrease your metabolic demand so your heart has time to recover, has time to kind of um, give that oxygenated blood to your body, if that makes any sense. Trying to not get too science nerd on people. <laughs> but just enough science nerd. No, you're, it's great. <laughs> um, so I would imagine that, and you touched on this as well, you see neonates really, really, I mean, fre fresh children, <laughs> fresh kids, like they were just born. <laughs> and 
and some older kids. So when you're thinking about metabolic demand and some of the signs that you see, does that change as children age or do you have a set of signs that you typically look for or does that does that change over time and depending on how old your patient is so generally it kind of stays the same um the signs and symptoms may just be a little bit different so always in like my assessment skills my kind of intuition with that it's going to look different if a patient's heart is not performing well, if they're a baby versus they're a 17 year old. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's going to be certain things, you know, we're, we're always looking out for in our unit, we say, okay, what are this, what are you looking for to make sure you have adequate cardiac output? So basically when I say cardiac output in layman's terms, I'm thinking good enough energy for your body to function. So kind of the first signs we look for is um, we look for, one of the main signs is, do you have enough um, urine output, which mm-hmm. is crazy. And before I was into nursing and into science, you know, I don't pay attention to that at all. But some of our kids, we are measuring their urine output hour by hour, minute by minute, because that is a sign if their kidneys are getting enough oxygenated blood. So that's kind of universal for all kids in the ICU and all adults in the ICU. That is one of the first signs that's going to go if your metabolic demand is a little too high or if your heart is not able to kind of function to give your kidneys. So that's kind of a universal sign for, it say that would be for a two day old versus that would be for a 17 year old. Um, and then we kind of touched on that, uh, the lactate number that I can get um, off a line. That would be universal, same for every patient. Um, and then just other like kind of assessment um, on their breathing or whether they're tolerating feeds or um, things such as like, are they having normal bowel movements? Um, Is their heart rhythm normal? There's constantly, I feel like 47 things going on in my head when I'm at work, um, when I'm thinking about uh, kind of how my patient energy levels are. It really does sound like a puzzle. Is what it sounds like, honestly. And you're looking it at is it. A <laughs> yeah, how does this fit with this? And here's the thing: it's tricky because the puzzle pieces change, <laughs> or right. it sounds like anyway. And what used to fit, yeah. maybe it doesn't quite anymore. And what's happening? And I think that's one of the things that kept me um, continuing to work on this unit for five years is because um, the puzzle. You're right; the puzzle pieces are all different, and that's one of the things I love about kind of the cardiac world in pediatrics is because no patient's heart anatomy is the same and no patient's heart functions the same. And there's some things that I'll be like, okay, I had a patient with this heart defect and this is how they behaved after surgery. You have kind of things like that, that things you're expecting, Mm -hmm. but you also have those things that come out of nowhere. I've had experiences that I've only had once or patient's heart anatomy. That's one of a kind. No one's ever been born with that kind of anatomy and physiology so that's something that just kind of like stimulates me I'm interested in it I enjoy like going to work and being being able to look at a diagram of my patient's heart and kind of think through okay if they have a hole in this chamber which way is their blood flow going to continue to go etc um so I think it just continues to challenge me and stimulate me mentally and Mm -hmm. so that's what has kept me going back a lot of the reasons 
kept me going back and kind of staying in the same spot. So that's the perfect segue to my next question, because I would imagine, okay, so you're looking at the puzzle, you think you've got how the pieces are fitting together in that moment. And let's say there's something that's shifting, something's aberrant. How do you make that shift happen and make it move towards more of a a balance? Yeah, so the one of the hard things about that is a lot of times um, we're trying to figure out kind of what caused that shift. Like what a lot of times we're like, okay, well, what's changed? If I'm calling a physician, I'm saying, hey, my patient's blood pressure is low. What do you want me to do? they're not going to immediately say, let's do this. They're going to be like, okay, well, what else changed? Um, did, did your heart rate change? Did your, um, we have lines. A lot of times we um, measure kind of your fluid status in your patient. So we call it a central venous pressure. Um, sometimes we call it a right atrial pressure if it's a post-op. So basically it's measuring, it's another measuring tool to see kind of what the patient needs, where they're at. So they could ask, a million questions we're trying to figure out, not just how to treat it, but why did that happen? Um, and sometimes it's frustrating. You don't know why things happened, um, which is a whole nother thing. But um, there's things that we kind of do to try to even out why was there a shift in their metabolic demand and how can we lower it? So kind of one of our first line um, things is when we we can tell that the heart's working too hard or you're not getting kind of the proper energy and oxygenated blood that you need is we will um, put the patient on a ventilator. Um, so that's basically taking away the work, um, your breathing. So you're not, um, the ventilator can give you a certain amount of breaths in minutes. And then as we um, kind of start to figure out things, we'll kind of start lifting that patient sedation. So they can breathe on their own, be awake while they're on the ventilator. But I think at first in the kind of investigation mode, we're going to like intubate them, put them on with a breathing tube onto the ventilator and kind of take that puzzle piece away mm -hmm. or take that kind of mystery away. So we're like, okay, we're taking this away from them. Their heart's not going to have to work to do that. Let's put that in the back corner and then move on to the next thing. So then if that wouldn't improve, the next thing we could do is we add medications. Um, we add kind of continuous drips, um, several different, we call them inotropes, but um, several different medications that um, have different effect on the beta and alpha cells of your heart and your myocardium that can help it pump, squeeze, or there's some that help your heart relax. Um, so those are, um, we have like a dopamine drip, an epinephrine drip, norepi drip. Those might be words or kind of, um, terms that people have heard. Um, so that would kind of be our next step. And then we're constantly following lab values, seeing if electrolytes need to be repleted or they're getting a little bit too high, if their kidneys aren't functioning properly. Um, and then as I kind of mentioned earlier, some of our patients require dialysis. So you're kind of trying to take away all of these um, energy expenditures expenditures of your heart to kind of see if we can give your heart time to rest and recover and figure out kind of what sent it over the edge. Mm -hmm. um, so when so you're talking about an IV drip, um, and actually you didn't even say IV, I did. When you're talking <laughs> about a drip, you're talking about those fluid bags kind of on the side of the bed where you can actually 
add medications and give them to your patient in that way, correct? Yes. Got yeah. It. So we'll have continuous medications in bags um, that then we have through patients' IVs or PICC lines, which is just like a more uh, long-term um, IV line into their vessels, which is a continuous strip that's so let's say um, dopamine in smaller terms, it's basically helping um, your heart pump and squeeze. So it's helping your pumping chamber of your heart get out oxygenated blood to all your organs. And so you can have them on a very small amount of that medication to start, or you can max them out. Um, generally, we don't like to max patients out on one of those drugs because yes, imagine. they help, but they also have harmful side effects. So some of those like dopamine and epinephrine, they can also cause your heart to go into irregular rhythms, which then just causes another kind of wrench in the plan and kind of sets you back from kind of figuring out the puzzle piece or figuring out um, what's going on. So you're telling me and everyone else that's listening that you've got all these puzzle pieces. And in fact, some of those puzzle pieces are the actual medications that you may be using because you're constantly weighing benefit versus risk. Right. It's always kind of a benefit versus risk thing. So we'll have some, um, speaking of that, we have like our heart failure kids that come in, they're teenagers. Um, and a lot of times those kids, they really don't, they know something's wrong but they really have no idea that it's, it could be heart failure because that's something that just our today's society, you think of heart failure, you think of someone that's 50s or 60s, overweight, has a poor diet, has diabetes, et cetera. But really, it, I mean, we have kids all the time. We've had healthy kids that are 15, 16, 17 that play sports, athletes. Those are the kids that kind of collapse on, um, you hear stories about them collapsing on the soccer field, collapsing on the football field. It's because they've had this heart failure that no one has any idea what they would have. But by the time they come into us, generally their heart function is so low and their metabolic demand is so high, their heart cannot keep up with the energy that their body needs. So they could be in, the organs could be failing already. Um, so that first, first few days that they're with us, uh, we know we want to intubate them and put them on a ventilator, um, but even just that procedure can stress out your heart so much um, that you could have a cardiac arrest um, or you could go into an arrhythmia. So we're constantly weighing risk versus, versus benefits. Like we know that we're going to need to have them on a ventilator, but we need to get them at just the right time um, and kind of have the circumstances to be almost perfect to put them on that ventilator without them having an arrest. So you're constantly being like, okay, we know that they're going to benefit from this, but how high is the risk? Um, so a lot of times in those patients, we'll have certain things. We'll have like, um, we have machines called ECMO, machine, ECMO machines. Um, and that's kind of what you hear when you're like, someone's on life support. Um, so that's a huge machine that, pulls blood from your body, it oxygenates it, um, and then it puts it back in. So it takes over the job of your heart and lungs. But a lot of times when we have these kids that we're weighing risk benefits to just simply put them on the ventilator, we'll have that machine ready and on standby because we think that their um, cardiac output, their function, their heart is so poor. Um, yeah. 
they're not going to be able to they're not going to be able to um not arrest while we do that honestly anna this sounds superhuman (laughs) because (laughs) on top of i mean really how can one clinician consider all this constantly because you have the clinical piece but on top of that you have you know you take care of patients that are young you know they could be in high school as you mentioned and they're on the soccer field one day and they collapse and being an athlete and yourself being an athlete I can't imagine what that would be like so on top of the clinical piece you must be like a master communicator because your patients are going to be scared the families man I I gosh I really just I have to hand it to you it sounds superhuman (laughs) and I think one of the greatest things about it is that it's never just me um so yes my communication skills have increased so much by working on this unit but it's also I'm never alone so yes when I have a patient for my 12 or 13 hour shift, I'm the one that is primarily at that bedside. I'm the one that's constantly looking at the monitor, constantly thinking about kind of small changes. But the great thing about it, especially my unit, it's like we really do team nursing and I will have nurses that have patients next door. If I'm needing help, they're constantly dropping things to come help me. We have um, a team of physicians that are always on the unit um, within like a cause reach, or if your patient's really decompensating, then sometimes they're literally sitting outside of your door for 10 or 12 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just have a huge staff and huge team that we've all had to learn to just work together because otherwise it's just not something that one single person could do. Right. Do you, do you have nursing networks? Does that exist online or... Uh, do you have, I don't know, Instagram? How does that work? Yes. So there are a bunch of different kind of like professional nursing groups. Um, I am in one of them. I'm not super active to say, um, but my grandmother, <laughs> full, disclosure. <laughs> full disclosure, not super active. Uh, my grandmother was a cardiac nurse for 40 years. Um, oh, it's in the family. She, uh, it's in the family. Um, so she was obviously the most excited when I decided I wanted to be a cardiac nurse. Um, but she was, um, president of this huge nursing organization for, I think five years. Um, and so she's huge in that nursing community. So she's had so many like outlets for me to kind of reach out to, but I'd say my biggest nursing community is um, people on my unit. Um, so I started when I started almost five years ago, um, I started with a group of five other girls. So there's six of us. Um, and all six of us are still, um, on that unit and we're all six still super close. They're some of my best friends. Um, and just, especially in ICU nursing, I mean, there's a huge turnover rate, um, for many reasons. I mean, people want to go back to school. They want to be nurse practitioners. They want to be nurse anesthetists. Um, they want to get their masters or people just get ICU burnout. So it's something that, yeah, it's pretty stressful. You're dealing with, um, the stresses of the patient not doing well. You're dealing with stresses of the parents. Um, I think that was one thing that was huge to me when I went into pediatric nursing, I had no idea that it would be so much of, yes, I'm dealing with my patient, 
but I'm also dealing with my patient's family and parents and just the stress level and their energy levels that sometimes I, I'm trying to not let seep into myself. You know, you kind of, you want to be invested, but at the same time, I have to kind of stay protected. So that's something that, um, you know, after two, three years of doing, people just get exhausted and want to move on. So that's been one super cool thing for me is that my five best friends that I started with were all still there. So over the years, we have been kind of an outlet for each other to, hey, we'll get on a group call, we'll get on a group FaceTime and be like, hey, my day sucks. Let me talk about it. Or hey, this is what I did today. Like, do you guys think I should have done this? Like, what could I have done better, et cetera. So it's been so good to kind of have that outlet. And honestly, I think it's what has kept me in the same job for the amount of time I have been. I think the the knowing about clinician burnout is so, so important. It's so prevalent. And I think it's very important to talk about it to clinicians and give you all the opportunity to say, hey, this is very real. These are the reasons why. And talk about energy. And you hit a good point throughout all of this, you're maintaining your own energy. And where do you want to be in that? And are you absorbing all of the things that happen at work too much, but at the same time you do somewhat, right? Because it's a human to human connection and you're taking care of people. Yeah. So I think it's definitely hard, especially, I mean, we've had families that we've had on our unit for eight, 10, 12 months. And you develop a relationship with them. I mean, they're, we're their family. They're there every day. They're babies. If their baby is born all the way until they're 12 months and they are on our unit the whole time. Um, I mean, we kind of become their family. They see us every day. We're a part of their routine. Um, so it's so easy to get close and it's hard to put up those boundaries. Um, but at some point for me, I have just found the best thing to do is to keep those boundaries um, just for my mental health and my well-being, which may sound selfish. Um, doesn't mean I love the patients any less. It's just if I got so attached to every single patient I had, I would six times out of 10 end up heartbroken. Uh, Cause unfortunately the unit that I work on, there's still a ton of research to be done. There's still a lot of heart defects that kids are born with that there's no cure. Um, there's palliative surgeries, but there's no surgical cure. So um, there are a lot of um, outcomes that end in a patient going home on hospice or a patient passing away on our unit. Um, so it is at times like a really hard and really depressing place to work. And I've just kind of had to set those boundaries. Um, there was a few years ago, I got super close to a patient, patient passed away. I still stay in contact with those parents, but um, a handful of us went to his funeral. I think he was maybe eight or nine months when he passed away. And I don't regret going to the funeral. It was a lovely experience. But that after that, I was like, okay, that's where my boundary is set. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not going to take it outside of work. I cannot go to patients' funerals anymore because then it just emotionally kind of takes you over. Yeah, um, you were starting so a line of it destroying you. Right. And I'm not going to be the best nurse I can be and the best clinician I can be if I am too emotionally involved. 
Absolutely. Um, so sometimes I'm trying to think of it with a scientific mind and, you know, with a like non-biased mind for the patient and the parents, because I'm like, at the end of the day, this is my patient and I need to do what is best for their body, their heart. Um, so over the years, there's just been certain boundaries that I've kind of had to like have a fine line with and figure out um, where they what are. kind of coping mechanisms and what things I need to keep my energy levels up and to keep my like mental health um, up in order to work on this type of unit. Mm-hmm. Um, so talking about your energy levels, and we talked a lot about, um, you know, the idea of metabolism and the demand on your energy storage and where it gets sent in the sense of patients in a hospital where something is going very, very wrong. What about, you know, those of us outside of the hospital and there's not something overtly going wrong? Do we experience a change in our metabolic demand? Have you, have you felt it in yourself? And if so, can you describe what that was like or how did you know it was happening? Yeah, I think the main when I think like metabolism, metabolic demand for myself, I think about exercise, um, which I know obviously that's how you and I met was exercise. Um, <laughs> but when I'm thinking about my energy levels um, and my metabolism, my demand is I'm thinking about kind of what, what I'm asking my body to do on a day-to-day basis. So um, at work, it's obviously a little bit different than my off days, but generally my off days, I like to kind of have my non-negotiables as one of my roommates said, say, um, so my non-negotiables on my off day are I try to drink a lot of water. I always have to start my day with black coffee and I want to move my body. I want to sweat. Um, so that last, that exercise, so that's going to be the main kind of determinant on my metabolic demand and what kind of what energy levels my body needs in order to perform. If I have an off day, and I am just exhausted and I am in my bed or I'm watching Netflix for 10 hours, uh, speaking for a friend, you know, I obviously never do that. <laughs> um, I hear you know, people energy, do that. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I've heard of people doing that, but I personally have, have never been that person. <laughs> uh, my energy level, you know, kind of the calories that my body feeds in are not going to be as high as when I go to an F45 class or workout class or when I go to hot yoga and I move my body and ask my body to do more than it did the day before or try to do a new movement, try to do a new yoga pose. I mean, I'm going to need more energy. My metabolic demand is going to be higher than it is if I am on a Netflix binge or if I am reading a book all day. Uh, Not bad things, but just different. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's kind of all... For me, you know, I just thinking of kind of what energy, what fuel I need to perform what I'm going to do for the day. Um, And I think working on the unit has made me thankful for kind of what your body can do, kind of what my body can do outside of work. You know, every time um, we exercise us as healthy um, people kind of living in DC, you know, it's a fit city. People are running, constantly working out, doing different things. You never think about, oh, there's some people that can't do this. Mm -hmm. Um, So kind of every time I try to work out or every time I exercise, I'm trying to thank myself and my body for whether it's 
I'm struggling through a one mile run or breathing through a five mile run. I'm thanking myself for getting up and moving and my body able to properly energize um, kind of what I need. Thank you for listening to the analytic assist. Additional information can be found in the podcast description below. Please leave your rating and reviews below and share with your friends. If you have any topics in mind related to energy, science, innovation, and your own interest, please let me know at drshaunag at gmail.com or message me on Instagram at the analytic assist. Until our next investigation, goodbye for now.